Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Technology. You know, one of the things that has been common since the advent of the perhaps commercial web is the idea of how to conceptualize it and to conceptualize it for many purposes, to think about policy, to think about law, to think about culture. And you know what? This is one of the things we're going to talk about today. And to assist us with our conversation, we have Pyle Aurora, who is an assistant professor at Erasmus University in the Netherlands. She's also the author of the new book, The Leisure Commons, A Spatial History of Web 2.0. So, Pyle, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Jasmine, for having me on. You know, one of the first things we like to do on the show is to just give the authors uh, time to do an introduction of themselves. So please tell us, what is your background as far as how did you get into the study of um, Web 2.0 and uh, language, literacy, and technology and all those things? <laughs> okay, that sounds <laughs> rather broad. Okay. Well, um, you know, I, I'm... I'm from India, I mean, particularly Bangalore. Um, a lot of people know it as the Silicon Valley of India. And so I grew up there and uh, moved to San Francisco just in time when they were, you know, churning out those T-shirts of don't get Bangalorized. So it was nice to know that they knew about us. <laughs> so, And so I spent about 16 years in the U.S. And, and now in the Netherlands. So it's sort of intuitive for me to approach you know, uh, any subject really in a sort of comparative global lens. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, I, I would say like I started really getting interested in technology when um, I got this sort of project as a master student to go to a rural uh, part of India to, you know, sort of check out what Hewlett Packard was doing. They were supposed to wire a, dig- a village and make it a sort of digital village, you know, for the new century. And, um, it was just an excuse to see a part of India that I wasn't really engaged in because I grew up in the city. Mm-hmm. And that really got me interested in how people were using new media technologies, even in the most remote for marginalized areas. I mean, we had, like, I would see these farmers, instead of checking crop prices, they were, like, downloading, you know, uh, Bollywood stars and <sighs> they were photoshopping that. And so... It, it was really fun. And it's not just the web 2.0, but it's a leisure aspect of 2.0. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing that for, let's say, a decade of deep ethnography work. And so this has been quite a shift. You know, this book is really a more sociological book because I think every anthropologist should be a sociologist at some point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, because it's really allows you to step back and say, okay, now where does this fit in the bigger picture, right? Right. Um, how does this compare to other settings? Um, and so, yeah, this is um, where the journey started. Mm-hmm. Now, the book, uh, The Leisure Commons, A Spatial History of Web 2.0, what made you write this specific book? Um, so, as uh, I mean, unsurprisingly, the inspiration came from a park. <laughs> <laughs> It was, you know, it was, in, uh, actually, I remember clearly the time when this happened because I was a student uh, at Columbia University in New York, and I would escape to Riverside Park and, you know, do my usual jogging. And, you know, as doctoral students do, they think about everything but the topic of dissertation. So I was thinking about why do people, 
you know, somehow organize themselves. I mean, how do they know what to do in a park? There's no, uh, it's not really regulated. How do they know where to picnic, where to walk, how to, you know, um, yeah, how to behave in these seemingly open spaces. And particularly when it gets violated, then people sort of, you know, um, chastise them. And this was also, remember, at that time, it was the rise of Facebook. It was literally one year later, Facebook had come up and mm. um, other social network sites are really exponentially growing. So it was one of those fun things that my friends and I would get together and say, okay, let's, I know it sounds kind of nerdy, but <laughs> <laughs> actually the fun things for doctoral students, <laughs> let me clarify, and say, okay, let's compare a Web 2.0 space with you know, a park space. I just would put that out and people would come up with speakers corners and saying, oh, look at the speakers corner and Hyde Park and how that could be like Twitter and, you know, in terms of its potential for protest, these sort of hashtag publics. Um, many other different examples start coming. And what I found really cool was even people who are kind of not into Web 2.0 stuff or new media stuff really got engaged in talking about, you know, these social spaces because, of course, they are engaged with parks. Everybody is a park expert, so to speak, right? right. So that was what sort of clicked as, oh, people wouldn't mind having a conversation. They relate to parks in a very deep, intuitive sense. And why not sort of leverage on that and apply it to the so-called novel unprecedented digital space. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's how it really began. Great. And so you call it the leisure commons. And I, I wonder about the term leisure, because sometimes we think of leisure, I, I think people think of play um, or relaxation. And yet we've seen um, many parts of Web 2.0 as far as social media become very uh unrelaxed, if I had to use that word, um, you know, fraught with either hate speech, as some people classify it, or as you were just talking about activism or hashtag activism or hacking. So I'm wondering like how um, the leisure, is there a conflict with that term leisure or is has leisure expanded? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. And basically, that is actually the purpose of using the term. And I, I have to say that it's not the most marketable term. People <laughs> don't use that. Like they, they sort of stay away from the topic of leisure in um, new media studies. They're like, oh, isn't that something really peripheral? I mean, aren't you going off the subject? Right. And so, but the thing is that we have so much data to prove. I mean, it is a fact that what majority of people are doing online, not just by the way in the West, but also across emerging markets are primarily social and leisure purposes of play, entertainment, you know, connecting socially, just hanging out, browsing aimlessly. And this, these sort of leisure activities, like the top sites, the social network sites, pornography sites, mm -hmm. they're being experienced across the world. And so I really want to deliberately situate leisure at the center not on the periphery, because that's what we are doing. Mm -hmm. And within these activities, starting to say, okay, let's problematize these. Let's connect these innocuous, so-called innocuous spaces with really deeply 
resonant and contentious politics, uh, such as like, and when you go into pop literature, there's this rich, you know, breadth of how parts appear to be yeah, innocent, uh, leisurely, um, innocuous, but actually were deeply political mm-hmm. and uh, were, were the key grounds for social resistance, uh, were highly branded publics, like say fantasy parts, uh, you know, driven by the media empire. So you start off with something which appears unproblematic and then you start to unravel it because, and then we can see the same thing with the sort of rhetoric and hype of Web 2.0, you know, mm-hmm. of these participatory cultures, these leisure activities. So, so yeah, you can't separate the two. That's what I mean. It's leisure and labor, leisure and protest. I want to create these linkages very deeply across, right? Absolutely. And so I'm wondering also, and I think you touched on this in the book, um, we think about the park uh, and in the United States, we think of perhaps park systems, whether through counties or the federal parks. I'm wondering if, like parks, the web started off with, you know, one purpose. So Facebook was connecting students across campuses, right? And then the purpose changed or how their use changed. And, I, and I'm wondering um, if that is um, like the, uh, you know, analog park. And why do you think that is? Oh, I love this, the analog part. <laughs> <laughs> I like that term. So, uh, you should, yeah, you should find that now. Um, so, yeah, actually, um, I would say that's one of the, like I start off with that, is saying that when uh, parts of radical conceptualization of the 1900s, mm-hmm. and, uh, I mean, imagine in, in those days, there were the imperial powers, the royalty, and at that time, they, the idea that the masses could have a state for no other purpose but for their social and leisure purposes in the heart of a city was radical. It was unprecedented. Um, you know, there, and there was a deep ideology driving this. It was also partly the movement of urbanization, you know, and and creation uh, into the city. So you had these diverse groups of people coming together and deep tensions, and the state had to, whether the state in the US or the imperial powers in China or the royalty in the UK, they had to come up with a sort of safety valve to allow these very differentiated publics to work together. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they couldn't actually control and order them. In fact, if we look at the history of Beijing parks, um, the state didn't necessarily resist it. They were the main drivers of this because they wanted to signal to the world that they were, you know, they were they had arrived in the modernity stage. Uh, they also wanted to show to their public that they really were deeply paternalistic, that they were out there to shape them and to really so-called civilize them, you know, socialize them, you know, as a new modern citizen. Mm-hmm. So. That's how the architecture of the Beijing parks, for example, came to be. Or if you say it's the same kind of conversation you'll see in Hyde Park and uh, by the royalty in England or in the Massachusetts parks by the state governments of that time, is how do we control these, you know, uh, so-called uncivilized public? How do we socialize them? It's time to take them to a new era. So it's a similar rhetoric you see in Web 2.0 where 
it was, you know, com coming from the military and the government. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to make the government more accessible, you know, make society more orderly. And as things have it, as intent and practice don't often go hand in hand. Right. So if you look at what happened with Beijing parks, was the public used them as sites of resistance. There were ma massive protests, which really surprised. Actually, I'm surprised that they were surprised, but <laughs> it was, you know, it, it surprised them, the imperial powers, because they thought, oh, wouldn't they be satisfied with this new space that we're gifting them? And they even opened up library corners and, you know, healthcare centers within the park to as ways of sort of a more utilitarian means. But these guys wanted to, the public at that time were just really engaged in multiple activities, come together, you know, uh, address issues that were deeply socially oppressive. So, yeah, they, it was one of the pivotal points where, you know, social movements and protest movements sprung up within these sites. So there's a long history of parks as sites of resistance, and that's what I find so exciting, that the intent was to socialize them, but the end point was often of resistance and, you know, modification of these sort of primal architectures. Right? Mm -hmm. Now, in the book, you go... Um through a lot of different parks or different kinds of parks. So you have uh, walled gardens, you have corporate parks and fantasy parks and protest parks. And you talk about the, the difference um, between all of these and how Web 2.0 um, relates to all of these different kinds of parks. So my, my question is, when I think of parks, um, obviously I'm coming from a very Western and American perspective, and I think of the difference between the different kinds of parks just from my experience, where I think of the county or city-run system, very urban um, parks set aside for space, and the county goes through and mows the lawns and opens and closes the swimming pools. And then I think of the federal parks, which are just huge swaths of land set aside supposedly for conservation purposes and to maintain the, the beauty of, you know, the country, but also have allow people to use them and, uh, you know, camping and things of that nature. And they can't really regulate what goes on totally, although they can put up rules and, and hope to stop people from doing certain things. So when I think about Web 2.0, I'm wondering is regulation at all possible with these kinds of um, spaces? So we can try, and, and we've seen countries attempt to shut off the internet and social media, but at least with parks, I guess, you can shut down the park. Um, can you really shut down the park with Web 2.0? Um, yeah, uh, it's you know, let's actually just to clarify the sort of metaphor here mm -hmm. is that, um, you know, urban parks were used as a metaphor because it was a very concerted action and a, a concerted architecting of public space sure. for purposes. So just like Web 2.0, in, in, it was a carving of the larger internet epochs, right? Mm -hmm. So um, they seem like they both share this rhetoric of they both was, are supposed to be free for all, democratic, um, open, 
and actually they are omnipresent there across the world. Now, in terms of regulation, in terms of how are they architected, are they, can they be really architected is, I think a good example of this, this chapter I go into called World Gardens is mm -hmm. the fact is that the, in tech speak, they use the metaphor of World Gardens and it says a lot. It actually goes back to the urban uh, planning, ur urban park literature. Because when you look at how they define um, uh, wall gardens in new media spaces, it's really about closing these information spaces by certain providers. And that is, you know, for the sake, I mean, at least in the name of uh, protection, security for the customer, for the consumer, right? Mm -hmm. And it was a similar sort of logic for walled gardens of the past, um, in I mean, Gramercy Park, for example, in, the, in New York is a good case in point. In 1800s, uh, Gramercy Park came up, and even though the park was supposed to be for the public, it was actually, you know, the subtext was for the uh, the appropriate public. So you actually needed a key to uh, get in there. You had to open the gates, and often the people who had the key were the people who are wealthy and lived around that area. In fact, even if you don't even need those kind of, you know, strong regulations to regulate a space like that, because most of how people are governed are from informal rules, right? Mm -hmm. Like in park spaces, it was understood that women uh, couldn't enter, the like in Moscow parks, women could not enter those parks without being accompanied by the males. Um, and often in the evenings for matter, you know, marital purposes, there were very deep regulations of uh, homosexuals couldn't just congregate, um, you know, and a number of social rules were architecting those spaces. But it has opened up. And um, I would say that, you know, as a sort of a subversive activity, you see uh, that even in the history of parks, that homosexuals did use these parks for the very, you know, activities which were condemned. Mm -hmm. And we have a wonderful literature on that is how, like, look at the ramble, uh, through, you know, in Central Park was made for the um, wealthy around Central Park, but it became a hotbed for homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we, we have a number of those examples, but... Um, I would say that regulation is key here. Um, and I, I, one of my favorite, of course, uh, examples in this is the like button, right, on Facebook. Mm -hmm. you, every time you like something, you're automatically uh, becoming a member of a particular zone and a particular group. And much like what's happening today with gated communities, where people are choosing to live within particular confines mm -hmm. and the logic being that you can really be free when you have certain borders around that freedom. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a good conversation. I think worth thinking about is the relationship between regulation and freedom. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the uh, ideas surrounding public parks is the idea that this is the citizens of that city or county's park, right? So there's mm -hmm. a, the idea of ownership um, underlying uh, the public public spaces and public parks. Is there is that a dangerous kind of idea for? 
people to have with respect to the web and ownership, an idea of ownership of information or ownership of certain spaces that are a lot of times very um, corporate um, and, and therefore kind of private, even though used for or open for the public. So Facebook is considered kind of a public space, although it's hosted by a very private corporation. Um, and yet there's this idea of ownership. This is my Facebook page, or this is my Tumblr page, or my Twitter. Um, is that a... Yeah, I mean, that's that's the best strategy when you believe that you own something which is, you know, um, yeah, when you believe it is public, but actually is private, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... Um, Actually, it's it's fun to see the sort of evolution of metaphors, you know, how the sort of naive, like the old internet is a wild, wild west or the, the western frontier. So it's like everybody, whoever reaches there can own it. You can take a little slice of it. I mean, that was the first, you know, era of, um, of ideology do- dominating the internet. And today you hear more of the walled garden, semi-private spaces that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind of uh, metaphor is dictating it. And um, so, yeah, I would say that uh, it definitely is um, much more privatized. Like, let's take an, a good example here is Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say that's a good comparison is these are very privatized spaces in some sense. But when you go into Disneyland, once you enter there, you, you don't feel that you are encroaching in private property. You are, these are semi-private spaces. It's public and private at the same time, but deeply branded, right? Right. So it's, it's the founding of Disneyland was all about the merger of ABC and to manifest this urban park. Or you look at Angry Birds. I mean, Angry Bird parks have just come up in China. And it's not a coincidence. It's a sort of the space, the urban space is almost like an extension of the larger marketing plan of, uh, you know, Angry Birds, the great Finnish uh, video gaming and the um, app sensation, which has been downloaded a billion times. So, um, yeah, so it is, it's something that we are experiencing as most spaces are now semi-private in nature with the uh, impressions of publicness, mm-hmm. constant negotiation between to what extent is can it be public, and this kind of this this will be a dialectical relationship. I would say, you know. Mm-hmm. And you talk about Disney uh, in um, one of the later chapters of your of the book, I believe, on virtual um, spaces, and you talk about the Disneyfication of <laughs> virtual. Uh, spaces mm-hmm. on online as well. Now, I'm wondering also, um, and, and one of the things I should tell you that I really enjoyed is that you do look at um, this metaphor from an international perspective and not completely focusing on the West and, I guess, uh, what's considered the global uh, North. And, and so I think it's important to um, look at parks all over the world. And so one of my questions is when you do look at the idea of parks and, and public spaces all over the world with respect to this metaphor, um, is there or are there some conflicts that are not resolved with how the publics in those different spaces view 
these particular spaces. So how perhaps America versus, I'd even say, uh, the Netherlands versus China versus India view these public spaces and, and how they're how they should be used, and then how does that transfer or transfer to the web? Um, yeah, it's it's a great uh, question because um, you know, in some regards, I've been trying to show the commonalities because what's tempting is, and what's dominant in today's um, approach to emerging markets versus the West is the division of practices, mm -hmm. as if people in the West behave significantly differently from those in emerging markets, because after all, if you're poor and you're a farmer, wouldn't you rather be checking crop prices than playing a video game, right? right? So how can you learn much from their practices or how can you connect it? So mm -hmm. I've actually done the reverse thing, you know, actually from my field work, you know, in a, over a decade, a lot of what I've found in rural parts of India, from the Himalayas to the uh, from the north to the south, was the fact that in spite of their lower economic status, you know, the poor are just uh, in slums or in rural areas are just as much desiring to play video games, download music, watch movies. You know, they've got on Orkut, uh, which is you know the social network right. site in India, just booming but I think Facebook is taking over <laughs> uh, anyway as uh, but it's that to me was more the underlying is that there's much more in common but that said they of course there are different issues like you have you know the the Chinese firewall so the whole walled garden metaphor mm -hmm. in China looks rather different than say the walled garden in the US which is more about you know every time like uh, you know, like a particular political party, then the sort of it creates even more of a division, say, between the Republicans and the Democrats. You become you get into that sort of filter bubble or echo chamber, right? As what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. So that's a different kind of conversation because more from people being indirectly, you know, um, worked on by the media, whether it's Fox or ABC, and then it filters through and you know, methods in their actions, right? Mm -hmm. Versus in China, it is very state-driven, saying, well, you can't even, um, you can't Google uh, Tiananmen Square, you can't Google a lot of actually uh, issues and topics. Basically, good parts of the history is invisible. And so you have, you it pushes the citizen to behaving much more uh, creatively to uh, circumvent state regulations, you know, and censorship. So you definitely see the sort of the creativity manifest in very different ways, mm -hmm. but there is creative acts by citizens, whether it's China or the U.S. Right. So we're, we're talking about the book, Leisure, The Leisure Commons, A Spatial History of Web 2.0. If you wanted the audience for a new books and technology to know um, perhaps one or two important things about this new book, what would those be? Well, <laughs> um, let's see. I would say the the most important thing is to understand that we we can't talk about you know the digital spaces online and offline. It's such an old conversation, but people seem to be stuck. I think mm -hmm. they they 
say no, you can't speak in these div divisive terms, and yet they don't know how to bring them together. Mm -hmm. Because I keep hearing people still talking about them in separate ways. So what I would say is if people are really looking to engage with these new digital spaces, but uh, sort of averse to going into that to without or uh, believe that these are very divided still, I would really recommend, you know, going in going into this book because it really bridges the urban and the digital in ways which are not just transnational but is deeply historical mm -hmm. because after all our social acts are not just manifested from today but it, it it is reproduced you know over time it's influenced by historic practices so i would say that to me is the core of it and particularly if you want to know how these spaces are conceptualized and how they are architected and really fun facts you know whether the factory garden there's a lot of buzzwords out there like digital labor mm -hmm. and i mean it's so much fun to actually go back in the 1800s and say hang on what google is doing today and offering these leisure spaces like you know the google park to work in but actually enhancing productivity you can see in 1800s in the factory gardens where they were hiring, you know, the architects who architected Central Park for the same uh, corporate space, factory space, so they could enhance labor. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of great examples that sort of humbles us and makes us realize that these have deep historical precedents and it's not necessary that Web 2.0 is all that novel after yeah. all. Mm -hmm. So if we wanted to read more from you, do you have your own website? Yes, so um, it's at, well, my name, www.pilearora.com. Not too hard. <laughs> of course, if you can't spell that name, then it's just going to go somewhere very different. <laughs> so Great. it's my first and last name.com. Yeah. And if, and if we want to know what's next for me, what's next? Well, um, my colleague and I, my colleague uh, from India, Nimi Rangaswamy, uh, she's at Xerox and Myself, we just signed a contract with Harvard University Press mm -hmm. on a book called The Poor at Play, mm -hmm. Digital Life Beyond the West, which is, you know, uh, some of what I've actually been talking about is how people in the emerging markets are really fundamentally playing, engaging with entertainment, um, you know, pornography, and they have different concepts of privacy than you know, and they probably never heard of Edward Snowden. They're like, Edward who? You know? <laughs> so, and so these are the kind of conversations we want to bring out and say, if the majority of the world lie outside the West and they are often poor and in slums or in favelas in Brazil, let's okay. put that to the center of internet conversation. So that's our new, well, our forthcoming book. So. Sounds good. So this has been New Books in Technology, and the book is The Leisure Commons, A Spatial History of Web 2.0. Pyle, thank you for coming on the show. And ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time. <laughs>